Well, good morning. If you would, turn to the back of your bulletin. Each week we go over something that the Bible teaches, and this week we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the Scriptures. So we believe the Holy Bible was written by people who were divinely inspired, and that it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. God is its author, salvation is its purpose, and truth, without any mixture of error, is its content. Scripture reveals the principles by which God will judge us. Therefore, it is now and will be to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard for evaluating all human conduct, creeds, and opinions. If you have any questions about that, you're welcome to ask anybody here. My name is Rob, and and I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. You're welcome to ask anybody here about uh, a little bit more elaboration about what it is that that means, but I'd be happy to, to go over that with you after the service if you do have questions. Let's pray, and then we will jump into the text that we have today. Father, we come before you grateful that we get to gather here as a church, to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. Thank you that despite our sin, despite the various ways that we have fallen short, we can be assured that there is grace for all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that our church would be rooted in the good news of the gospel. We pray that it would be rooted on your word. So we just went over a portion of what your word teaches. God, we pray for marriages here in our church, that those marriages be rooted in the gospel, or that you would give spouses grace and patience and truth with one another. We pray that the marriages here would reflect Christ and the church. God, we pray for those who are new to our church. Thank you for allowing people to come here. God, we pray that they would get well acclimated, that those who have been here for a while would not only continue to grow and disciple, but they would recognize those who are new and try to connect with them for the sake of studying your word and and growing in their love and knowledge of Christ. And now, Lord, as we prepare to to jump into this new series in Exodus, we ask that as we march through this book, that you would show us what we need to hear, that we would rightly divide the word of truth, and that we would be edified by what you have said in your word. Lord, use this book, this book of Exodus, to make us more like your son, to be reminded of the deliverance that is offered freely in Christ. Lord, we pray for other churches. Lord, we pray for Chevrolet Baptist Church in Chevrolet, Virginia. Lord, we ask that you would restore John Joseph's sight, their lead pastor. Lord, we pray for those who are going over there and helping fill the pulpit Uh, while he is recovering. And God, we we ask that you would edify that church with the word that is preached. Lord, we pray for LifePoint Church here in Westerville as they now have a new lead pastor, Matthew Engel. And Lord, we ask that he and his family would get well acclimated to Westerville. We pray that you would bless them with a fruitful ministry, that the gospel will be proclaimed from LifePoint Church. Lord, help him to be well received by the congregation there. Lord, we pray uh, that their move from Florida up to here 
uh, would be a blessing, not only for them as a family, but also for their church and for the community of Westerville. We pray for our nation. We think of the fires that are going on in Maui. God, we ask that those fires would come to a screeching halt. We ask that you would spare lives. The death count is at least 80. We pray that that number would not climb. We pray that you'd give Governor Josh Green wisdom when it comes to the rebuild efforts and what is next for Maui. Lord, we pray for the families who have lost loved ones. Comfort them and use this devastating time to bring them and others to you. Help them to find you to be a sweet refuge. Lord, we do pray for West Africa. God, we are grateful for the Follets. We pray that you would raise up more missionaries, that more people would go, that your word would be made fully accessible. We rejoice that the first few chapters of Genesis have been made accessible. God, please allow the momentum to continue and allow your word to reach those people. Lord, we pray for Ecuador and the gang-driven violence that has been going on there for over the last two years. Lord, bring peace and justice. Thank you for being a God of peace and a God of justice. Lord, as these things rage on around us, we pray that the people of Ecuador and people across the world would look to you for the peace and justice that we long for. Thank you for providing it in Christ. Guide us as we look at Exodus chapter 1 now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so when I was in middle school, I had the opportunity to go on a trip. So what would happen is uh, the middle school in about eighth grade, half of the middle school would go on like a multi-day trip to D.C., and the other half would go on like a one-day trip to Kings Island. And I was in the one-day trip to Kings Island. And I was, I was still happy about that. I thought that was great. Would have loved to have gone on a multi-day multi trip. But we went to Kings Island in eighth grade, and very excited about this. You get up at like 5 o'clock in the morning, take a charter bus down, and you just get to spend the whole day in Kings Island. Well, while we're there, you always get your group of friends that you're going to be riding rides with, that kind of thing. Well, our group of friends happened to go on this ride called the Face-Off. And what you would do is you would face the two people in front of you, and they would face you. And this ride would essentially just be a roller coaster, and it, would, it was symmetrical on both sides. So you'd hit a peak up here, then you'd go down, do a bunch of loops, then you'd go up and hit another peak. And you'd stop there and go back down. Well, on the second time up, when we get to that peak, we hear a click. And we're not going down. And we're stuck up there. And it just so happens that our cart, our, the four of us, we're facing each other, we're at the very top. We're the, the highest cart up there. And the two people in front of us are leaning against their strap. So if the strap goes, I mean, literally, they go. That did not happen. And I'm sitting here leaning on my back. And, and what, you, what you get to figure out is you're up there for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, going on an hour. You get to see how people handle things when things start to begin pretty, looking pretty bleak. Some people, like the guy next to me, just wanted to crack jokes. Others, like those in front of us, cried a lot. <laughs> Others, like myself, just kind of went inward and just started getting real reflective about how good my life has been and how this is probably the end of it. Thankfully, they got us down and they gave us the amazing reward of being able to skip one line for one ride. <laughs> it's fantastic. 
But that's a funny example of how you handle things when they look pretty bleak. But what about the more serious examples? When the doctor gives you bad news. When divorce is mentioned by your spouse. When you lose your job. When you lose a parent or a child or a friend. How do you respond when things aren't going well? Well, as we look at today's text, we're going to see in this first chapter of Exodus, as we, we begin this new book of Exodus, we're going to see that God is faithful to deliver his people. Therefore, we can trust him when things look bleak. God is faithful to deliver his people. Therefore, we can trust him when things look bleak. So let me just give us some running context here. As we are jumping into Exodus. And Exodus happens to be the second book of what's called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And the author is Moses. And so you know how when you turn on a TV show and it says previously on... Well, we're going to do a little previously on Pentateuch. So previously, what we've seen in Genesis, that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things, and all things were good. And he commands Adam and Eve, who he also created, to do at least two things, to tend the garden and to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve reject God's command, and we see that in Genesis 3. And so they're cast out of the garden, and God, before casting them out in Genesis 3.15, he tells Adam and Eve, that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent who deceived the woman. He says there's going to be enmity. Going forward, you're going to see that these two are going to clash. And so sin spread from there to, to all creation. And God had to judge all creation as sin spread about it, and he did so in the flood. He destroyed the earth by a flood, judging sin. But then he makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8, essentially saying, I'm never going to do that again. One resource pointed out that theologians have long noted that without this covenant, without the Noahic covenant in Genesis 8, human sinfulness would have made the earth liable to one catastrophic judgment after another. So God, because he is just, he would have just continued to have to judge humanity over and over with these massive events. But he made a covenant with Noah saying, I've made this creation, and I've destroyed it to address sin, and I'm not going to eradicate humanity again. So, what ends up happening is God raises up a man called Abraham. And he promises that Abraham and his offspring will be a great nation. See that in Genesis 12. And that through this nation, that all of humanity will be blessed from this nation. And he promises Abraham that those who bless him and his people, God will bless. But those uh, who dishonor him and his people, God is going to curse them. And so he also promises Abraham in Genesis 15 that your offspring, now listen closely, because this, this is giving us some context here into what we're getting ready to read. He says, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. 
This is Genesis 15, where God foreshadows what we're getting ready to jump into. And so then Abraham has Isaac. Isaac, his son, has Jacob. And Jacob has his sons who end up heading the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, Jacob's favorite son, was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he ends up in Egypt, and then there's a great famine. And while he's in Egypt, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And so while he is there, Egypt begins to prosper, but there's a famine that is going on, and nations around them are struggling. And so they come to Egypt for protection, for bread. And during this, Joseph's brothers come to him. And Joseph provides for his brothers, And then, because he has such favor with Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, your whole family can just come to Egypt. Your family can come here, live here. We'll provide them with land, with security, with bread. They're going to be taken care of during this famine. And so Jacob's family, they move, Jacob and his whole family, which is about 70 persons, which we'll read about, move to Egypt where Joseph has provided a place for them. Which now brings us up to the book of Exodus. Now, just to pull us back a little bit, see a, a, some high-level, high 30,000 foot in the view, um, in the air view of what's going on. Exodus, you can break it up into about three parts. So chapters 1 through 13 is when Israel is in Egypt. 1 through 13 is when they're in Egypt. And then chapters 14 through 18, they're on the way to Mount Sinai. And then chapters 19, all the way to the rest of the, the end of the book, chapter 40, they are at Mount Sinai. Now, Sam Ahmadi, in commenting on this, he points out something important here. He says that Exodus is a development of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, as seen in Genesis 3.15. Remember, God said there'll be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And Sam Ahmadi points out this book, Exodus, is just a development of that enmity. And what's interesting is that Pharaoh's crown, centered right on the front of it, is a cobra, representing that Pharaoh is the one who is serving on behalf of the serpent. Isaiah, uh, commenting about what happened here in the book of Exodus, writing backwards about it, even said that, was it not you, God, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon, that great serpent, who pierced the dragon, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So even Isaiah is picking up on this understanding that Egypt is representative of the serpent, and God's people are going to have enmity with this serpent. As we go through this book, the overarching theme of the entire book of Exodus is God's faithful deliverance. God's faithful deliverance. He delivers them from famine in Genesis. He delivers them from bondage. And then he delivers them to himself. So we go through this book. We're going to continue to see over and over again God's faithful deliverance. So that was an extended intro so that we could really understand what we're getting into with this book. The intro and point one are probably going to be the places where we spend the most time. But we do have three points. So, what you'll see in, in, your, in your bulletin there are the three points laid out. So, in verses 1 through 7, we see the people multiplied. Verses 8 through 14, we see the people oppressed. 
In verses 15 through 22, we see the people delivered. The people multiplied, oppressed, and delivered. So turn, the, turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 1. If you're using one of the blue provided Bibles nearby, that's going to be on page 45. Exodus chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, then that blue provided one near you, just consider that one yours. You can take that. We would love for you to, to have that and to take it home with you. So, as we go through this book, you're going to find that we take it at larger chunks. Now, why is that? Because Exodus is narrative. And so, Exodus takes a longer time to make its point than maybe one of Paul's letters, which he makes its point in three or four verses. And so, typically, not always, but typically, we're going to take it at as larger chunks. So, let's look at those first five verses. Look at the first five verses of Exodus. And as we go, we're just going to read it as we go. Typically, I read all of it on the front end. This time, we're just going to kind of go unpack the verses as we come to them. So let's look at those first five verses in Exodus 1. This is God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And so Joseph served as a Christ-like figure. So like Christ, Joseph was a beloved son who suffered due to the sin of of others. We already talked about how his jealous brothers sold him into slavery. But then if you continue to read that story, you see that Joseph was then sentenced to jail because the, the guy whose household he was under, his wife attempted to seduce him. Joseph refused. And to get back at him, she accused Joseph of trying to make a pass at her. And so then he gets sent to prison. And then like Christ, after suffering for some time, he's then elevated to a high place. He's elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then like Christ, he also served as a savior to those who called on him. Remember, his brothers came to him asking for help. Joseph forgives his brothers. He saves his family from famine. And then he provides them with land, bread, and safety. So Joseph's favor with Pharaoh guaranteed security for Joseph's people. However, things take a turn for the worse. Look at verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So Joseph's death actually puts Israel in a pretty vulnerable situation. He was the one that was essentially securing their safety. One of my first times flying, I was flying southwest. And the stewardess came over the PA, the speaker, and she said, thank you for choosing Southwest. We're thrilled you've chosen to fly with us. But before we get going, we have a very special birthday announcement. She said, this is, this is no ordinary birthday either. This is his 98th birthday. And so she takes a pause, and people kind of gasp, like, wow, it's amazing. And she continues, she says, let's go ahead and give it up for our pilot. Bro, what? <laughs> Something happens to that guy. We're all going down. We're in trouble. That's essentially what's happening here. 
Joseph's at the head of this, this nation, and his favor with Pharaoh is guaranteeing the, the favor for all of his other people. And something happened to Joseph. And so now his people are in trouble. If you look at verse 7, we see the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So we're beginning to see that something's happening here with these people. They continue to get stronger and bigger. In fact, if you would, do me a favor, turn to Genesis 1.28. So turn in front of your Bibles, Genesis 1. So chapter 1, verse 28, we see that God blessed them and God said to them, he's talking to Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So at least, you see at least two commands here that God gives to Adam and Eve. The first is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why? Why would he say that? Well, it's because as those who are made in God's image, when God's image bearers multiply, then God's image multiplies throughout the whole earth. And when God's image is on display, God gets glory. And so as God's image multiplies throughout the earth, then God's glory begins to fill the earth. So when two image bearers, Adam and Eve, become three image bearers, then God receives greater glory. This is why Christians seek to preserve life at every stage, from the preborn all the way to the elderly. And we rejoice as God's image fills the earth. And so, Christian, it's good for us to speak out against abortion. It's good for us to protect the lives of the unborn. That unborn child has the image of God imprinted on it. And when it comes into the world, the world is filled with more of God's glory. But it's also why we speak out against things like physician-assisted suicide. Because that elderly person still is full of the image of God and still glorifies God. And so regardless, friends, regardless of health, regardless of abilities or age or development or intelligence or anything else, any other way we like to, to value individuals, regardless of any of those things, that image bearer, simply by existing, is glorifying God. That, that person is bringing honor to God just by existing. And so if you're married, I would encourage you, if you're able, have children. It's a, it's a good thing. It glorifies God. Christians, seek to preserve life. Rejoice that God's image is filling the, the earth. Maybe you're here, and you realize that you've been on the other end of that. That you, in fact, have taken life. Be it through abortion, or encouraging someone to have an abortion, or physician-assisted suicide, or whatever, any other way. Know this. God stands ready and eager to extend forgiveness to you if you would only ask it. Friend, you have not outsinned God's grace. Jesus says in John 6, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. No matter what you have done, forgiveness 
is available through Christ. Okay, but so the first thing he tells Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is what we see Israel doing here. Look at verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But then the second thing that, that God tells Adam and Eve in that Genesis 128 passage is to essentially rule over the earth. He says, subdue it, subdue the earth, and have dominion over, and he lists all the, the creatures in the earth. And so Israel, as a new humanity, is fulfilling that first part of what's called the creation mandate. They're being fruitful, they're multiplying, they're filling the earth. But the second part of the creation mandate was being abused. God told humanity to subdue the creatures, to rule over the creatures that were made, not other image bearers. And what was happening in Egypt was that God, after commanding people to subdue the creatures of the earth, other people, other image bearers, were subduing other image bearers. Do you see, do you see how that's being abused? They were meant to subdue. That, that Hebrew word subdue means to bring into bondage or to rule over. And so rather than ruling over the creatures, they were ruling over other image bearers. They were subduing them. And so in these first seven verses, what we see is Israel is, in fact, becoming that great nation that God promised that they would be. See that in Genesis 15. However, as God fulfills this promise to make them a great nation, the serpent is striking back. There is enmity between people of God and the serpent. And we see in verses 8 through 14 that the people are then oppressed. So look at verse 8 with me. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they were ruthlessly made to work as slaves. So if you, if you see here, in those first couple verses, in verses 9 and 10, this new kingdom, or this new king of Egypt, he is absolutely terrified of Israel multiplying. He says, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And so he seeks to make their lives miserable. Look at that passage here. You see some of the words that are used. Dealt shrewdly with them. Let's afflict them. Heavy burdens. Oppressed. Ruthless. Slaves. They made their lives bitter. They were given hard service. And what's interesting here is that as he gives them hard service, as he gives them, tries to make their lives increasingly bitter, we're told that he has them build these store cities and has them build these uh, various different uh, monuments. And we see the pyramids. And they're called to use mortar and brick. Now, why is that interesting? Because the last time mortar and brick was mentioned was in Genesis 11, when we see the Tower of Babel. And so what we see happening here is the author, Moses, is giving us some subtle foreshadowing 
that Egypt is among the enemies of God. Having them use mortar and brick. And God will treat Egypt as enemies. Now, look at verse 12. Notice how Pharaoh's plan backfires. We read that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So as oppression increases, multiplication increases. And look, friends, this is just the pattern of Christianity throughout history. We see it in the Old Testament with Egyptian slavery. We see it in the New Testament where we see the church in Acts 2, and then in Acts 1 we read about Saul persecuting the church, and then as you read throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see the church just expanding. We see it in the 16th century with the Reformation. And we see it today with, with China and Middle East, and some even include North Korea, as some of the fastest growing areas for Christianity. That as oppression increases, multiplication increases. No amount of persecution can thwart God's promises to his people. In fact, God so loves his people that he will actually use their affliction to bring about a greater good. And so look, no matter how crafty the serpent gets, God will always have the final say. And look, friends, if you are in Christ, that final say will always be in your favor. God is working all things for the good of those who love him. If you are in Christ, and you can guarantee that that final say that God has over your life will be for your good, even, even if that final say leads to your death so that you can be with God eternally. So if you're not a Christian and you're here today, thank you for being here. We hope you continue to come back. We hope you feel welcome. If you have any questions, again, please feel welcome to ask any of us, but have you ever considered just the possibility that God may be using the affliction that you have in your life, the suffering that you have in your life to get your attention. Perhaps this will be the thing that gets you to turn away from your sin, to stop serving the serpent, and to go toward Christ. Consider calling on Christ to remove your sin. Your sin can be removed, but it is, friends, it's only through Christ. He's the way, the truth, and life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. It doesn't mean that your life's going to be easy. Israel was, was God's people and they still underwent slavery for hundreds of years. As Thomas Watson puts it, he says, Christianity is not the removal of suffering, but the addition of grace to endure suffering triumphantly. God will have the final say in your life. And no matter how crafty the serpent gets, you can know that God's final say will be in your favor if you are a Christian. And so when you're oppressed, know that God is just and he will take vengeance. When this life is bitter, fix your eyes on the sweet reality of eternity with Christ. And when affliction comes, take comfort knowing that God's faithful plans will prevail. So we've seen the people multiply, we saw the people oppressed, and now we see the people delivered. But before they're delivered, it's going to get worse. So we see Pharaoh's second plan. So his first plan was slavery. Let's make their lives as difficult as possible. Let's make their work bitter. Let's put heavy burdens on them. First plan, plan one, make their lives miserable as slaves. Plan one, failed. The more
the oppression took place, the more they multiplied. And so now Pharaoh goes back to the drawing board and he goes, okay, plan B, genocide. So let's look at verse 15. So then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. So now, in addition to enslaving them, Pharaoh now commands the midwives to kill every newborn male. Why the males? Well, it's likely because those newborn males are eventually going to grow up to be the fighters for Israel. And so if there's not any fighters available, then the chances of Israel rebelling against Egypt go way down. So he says, let's take away their future military. Now, ironically, there's going to be a little spoiler alert here, but ironically, even though Pharaoh commanded that Israel's sons be killed, it's Egypt who will lose their sons later in the story. One commentary said that when God instructs Moses about what he will say to Pharaoh, he refers to Israel as his firstborn son and warns, that refusal to listen will lead to the death of Egypt's firstborn son, which comes about in the 10th plague. So some foreshadowing there. However, Pharaoh's attempt at mitigating the multiplication of Israel fails each time. Then he goes back to the drawing board again. So he goes to the midwives and he's frustrated with them. And what he does, he ups the ante and he gives the command to all of Israel. Egypt. But something for us to notice here, before we even go into that, something for us to notice is that the names of the midwives, Shipra and Pua, were given those names. And in contrast to that, all throughout Genesis and throughout Exodus, we are never given the name of Pharaoh. Now, why would the Holy Spirit choose to honor these two midwives? Because it's an honorable thing for their names to be in there. And Pharaoh never, perhaps the most powerful man in the world, never gets his name even mentioned, just referred to as his title. So why would the Holy Spirit choose to honor these two midwives? Well, it's because they feared God rather than Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is likely the most powerful man in the world. And so to reject a command that he gave directly to you would very likely lead to your death. But Shifra and Pua, they feared God more than losing their lives. They wanted God's reward more than Pharaoh's reward. And so they disobeyed Pharaoh's command. We see that in verse 17. And God blessed them for it. Now, a couple questions may be coming to the mind at this point of the story. The first 
If you've read Romans 13, you might be thinking, doesn't Romans 13 tell us to submit to the governing authorities God has placed over us? How is this not a contradiction to that? Pharaoh's the governing authority. He tells them to do something. They don't, and God blesses them for it. How, do, how does that work with Romans 13? See, I, I knew the Bible was filled with all kinds of contradictions. However, if you read Romans 13 carefully, read Scripture carefully, what you're going to find is that we submit insofar as it doesn't lead us to live in a way contrary to God's will. And so in that authority chain, God, God's placed authority in our lives. And good authority is a good thing. Authority used properly is a good thing. However, God is at the top of that authority chain. And so if any of the authorities that are in your life encourage you to go a contrary to God's authority, to what God's will is for your life, then you no longer have an obligation to submit to that authority. You need to submit to God. And that's what Shipfer and Pooh are doing. Our Confession of Faith talks about this in Article 16. It's derived from the 1853 New Hampshire Confession. But they put it well when they say that civil government exists by divine appointment for the benefit and good order of human society. Government officials are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored, and obeyed. The exception is for matters contrary to the will of our Lord. And so authority, when used properly, is a good gift from God. However, God is always our highest authority. So we don't obey the authorities he's put under us when those authorities lead us away from him. And so the second question is, is God rewarding the midwives for lying? It seems like these midwives are being deceitful and God's rewarding them for that. Now, as I was wrestling with that throughout the, throughout the week, you just, as you look at the text really closely, you begin to realize that the text doesn't say that they lied. The text says that essentially the Hebrew women give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so the midwives may have told the Hebrew women, hey, we were given this command. When you let us know, we're going to take our time getting there. Or they might say, hey, don't let us know until you're already pretty far along. But what they said is essentially true, that the Hebrew wives give birth before we get there. But I think it's also helpful to understand that they were, they were being rewarded for obeying God rather than man, for preserving life, for preserving the image of God, the glory of God. And so in verse 22, as mentioned earlier, Pharaoh recruits all of Egypt to now carry out this genocide. So rather than limiting the plan to the midwives, he now expands it to all of Egypt. But friends, something for us to see here is that God is always going to deliver his people. He is faithful to do that. He delivers Israel here through two faithful women who likely were in a low position in that society. And yet God uses them to deliver his people. And in delivering his people, he eventually establishes a line where our great savior, our ultimate savior, would eventually be born in. And look, this isn't going to be the last time that Satan goes after babies. We see it here in Exodus 1. We also see it in Matthew 2, where about 1,500 years later, another ruler, Herod, commanded that all boys aged 2 and under be murdered in the Bethlehem region. So like Moses, Jesus was spared from that genocide. Like Moses, Jesus would serve to deliver his people from bondage. Not physical bondage, but spiritual bondage. Because friends, sin has enslaved all of us. There is no exception. 
All of us are under sin's curse. And for all of us, it's marching us to eternal suffering. However, the good news is that Jesus has crushed that taskmaster. Jesus has destroyed the effects of sin. And so if you're not a Christian, at lunch today or, or this week, I would encourage you to ask a Christian what it means to be freed from the bondage of sin. Ask them that question. Christians, be ready. Ask the question, what does it mean to be freed from the bondage of sin? And then, either before or after that conversation, take some time to read Romans 6. Read Romans 6. Read, read through it slowly. And be looking for the, the slavery imagery. Christian, it's worth noticing in this text the radical difference between God's view of children versus Satan's. Satan hates seeing God's image and glory multiplying and filling the earth. And when God blesses Shiphrah and Puah for being faithful and fearing God more than fearing Pharaoh, he doesn't give them wealth. He doesn't give them incredible health. Not told that they lived for a very, very long time. He doesn't even give them increased status. He gives them children. He gives them a family. And so like Shiphrah and Puah, Faithfulness in today's age may cost you. It may be very dangerous to be faithful to your God and to reject some of the things that may be being, you may be pressured into doing. Be it at work, be it with friends, be it with family. But friends, I would encourage you, desire God's eternal reward more than the temporary reward that you may receive from disobeying his commands with those that are around you. Desire God's eternal reward more than the temporary reward. And so when things look bad and you're not sure how you're going to get through it, remember that God is faithful to deliver his people. Therefore, we can trust him when things look bleak. You see that here in Exodus. In, in chapter 1, it's just a foreshadowing of everything else that's going to take place. God delivered them, and he's going to continue to deliver his people. You can trust the Lord to deliver you. Look at that song that we sang, one of my favorite hymns, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. Verse 3, should persecution rage and flame, still trust in your Redeemer's name. In fiery trials you shall see that as your days your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. Or look at verse 3 on the next song. Christ is mine forevermore. Look at the second half of that. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. We have a God who delivers everyone who calls on his name. Christian, your deliverance is secured through Christ who took your place. On the cross, he paid for your sin. In the grave, he died your death. And in his resurrection, he secures your future, your eternal deliverance from the effects of sin. If you are not a Christian, Jesus stands ready to deliver you. 
if you would call on him, trust him today, turn away from the serpent and throw yourself onto the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We are grateful for your kindness toward us by faithfully delivering your people. We ask that when things look bleak, that we would trust our Redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.